uh, integral part of our church here for a lot of years. And, uh, and then Nick was real instrumental in kind of having me come here. And then, and then I candidated and I got hired and Nick said, see you later, I'm moving. And so I'm, I'm not sure how to take that still, but uh, he still wants to come back and preach uh, from time to time, and so we're very grateful to have it, uh, have you here, and in your families here as well. And so, if you don't know uh, Nick's family and extended family, please come and and visit with them afterwards as well. Uh, I know some of you do know them. Let's just pray for you, Nick, and then we'll we'll give it into Nick's hands. God, thank you for Nick's faithfulness to you, for his love for your word, and his desire to study and understand it. God, sometimes it's it's easy for me to forget that. Writing sermons is part of my job. And here's a faithful brother who this is hours and hours of preparation on top of everything else that he is called to do. And so we thank you for his dedication to you, for his desire to bring clarity to what the word of God says to us that we might know you. So be with us in these moments. Be with Nick. Help the Holy Spirit use him mightily in these moments now. Amen. How's that now? Is that working now? Yeah? All good. Good. All right. Good morning, guys. It, uh, it's great to be here. It's great to see you guys. Many familiar faces and some new ones as well. And uh, I, I got a call this week. Uh, uh, this sweet old, old, old dear lady at, uh, at our church. Her, her name is Doreen Spurgeon, actually related to Charles Spurgeon, which is amazing. And she called us this week and she said, uh, I want to pray for you guys. How can I pray for you? So one of the things I asked, I said, well, actually, um, we're going to be headed up to Banff on the weekend. Uh, I'm going to be guest preaching there. Can you, can you please pray for, for the, the message and for hearts? And, uh, and she goes, oh, what church? And I said, Banff Park Church. And she goes, that used to be my church. It's the best one in town. And I said, when did you go? 1978. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I thought, in 1978, it was the best church in town. And and I feel like when we lived here, I would tell everybody, oh, you've got to go to Banff Park Church. It's the best one in town. And by, by God's grace, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, uh, people will be seeing the same thing. So uh, let's, let's cling to the Lord. Let's cling to his word. And, and may that continue. So what we have today, uh, I'll get you to grab your Bibles and flip over to 2 Kings chapter 21. And we're going to be talking about three kings today. One is a good king. Another one is just a train wreck and with a twist ending. And the other one is incredible. So who we will camp most time on today is uh, his, his pronoun- the name is pronounced King Manasseh. It looks like Manasseh, the way it's written. I might say Manasseh a few times. But we're going to be talking about King Manasseh. But before we do, I want to give you, I want to tell you a bit of a story about the world that he grew up in about the background that he had through an incredible dad. His name was Hezekiah. So the, uh, the history of Israel is that soon after Israel had King David, the country was split into two countries. You had the north, 
that was known as the kingdom of Israel, and you had the south that was known as the kingdom of Judah. Now, the empire, the superpower of the day, was called Assyria, modern-day Iraq. And the northern kingdom was just full of crummy kings, bad king after bad king. And the, just the evidence of this disease that we have as humans, the Bible calls it the flesh or sin. It's a disease, a corruption from our first parents in the garden that has come up all the way to you and me, that it, it corrupts the level of DNA, and it makes us bent away from God. It makes us make choices that we don't want to make, and it sort of, it sort of handcuffs us and leaves us in a position that we need outside help to deal, fix it, and remove it. We'll get to that later. But what happened is that the northern kingdom sinned and sinned and sinned, and God said, guys, stop it. Send his people to say, if you don't knock it off, I'm taking you out of the land. And they thumbed their nose at God again and again. And God used the superpower of the day, the Assyrians, to come to take those people away, drop them off in other countries, Syria and Iraq, and bring a new people, put them there. The capital city was called Samaria, so these new people became known as the Samaritans uh, and became lifelong enemies of the Jews that remained in the south. So King Hezekiah would have known this. He would have seen that on the edge of his border, which used to be Israel, which used to be Hebrews, now has these hostile people, and it's basically Assyria is at his back door. And what does he do with this? Hezekiah fears the Lord. It's wonderful when you're reading through the kings and it's bad king, bad king, bad king. And then this verse that says, and Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so in that day, although the Israelites were supposed to worship only God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were very much like Canada into anything and everything. They were worshiping. They would have altars on the top of every mountain to all kinds of gods. They were worshiping gods that required horrible unmentionable stuff to worship them. And Hezekiah, he says, there's one God and only one God. And he is Yahweh, and this is Israel, and I will make sure they worship him and him alone. So he destroys the altars on the things. Uh, he, he makes worship of Yahweh and Yahweh alone, and they do well. It's good for the people, and they, they love him, they respect him, but the Assyrians don't like this. They, it's not good for have this country that, that thinks that it can be a country of its own. He rebels against the Assyrians. They come, and if you go to the next side there, they take out everything. Everything except for Jerusalem. There was a, a city called Lachish, and it was a little bit west of Jerusalem, strong, fortified. You would never think anybody would take it. They take it. And so right now, the Jewish people are down to Jerusalem. It's basically a, a city-state. Though the walls of the city is all that is left of the people of God. The Assyrians come. They, from Lahish, they send three ambassadors to the wall. And it, it's like, it, it's, it's a really good story. Uh, we went over it a few years ago. Maybe some of you might remember. Second Kings 18, where it, it's top quality trash talk. The three Assyrian commanders come up to the wall, and uh, Hezekiah sends three uh, ambassadors to, uh, to talk to them. And they shout, they say, listen, we're here. To let you know, Hezekiah has done wrong, and he's done, and you're going to open up the doors, and you're going to come out, and we're going to relocate you. It's going to be okay. We're going to bring you to another place. You'll have wine. You'll have vineyards, but it's not going to be here. 
And think about it, like the Jewish people are inside the city thinking, but this is the land, right? We, we left Egypt. God brought us here. We're supposed to be here. We, we can't just open the doors and say, all right, and, and go. And so there would have been this dilemma. And then these Assyrian commanders say, not only that, do you even realize your God brought us here? It's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. And then the three ambassadors say, please, please speak to us in Aramaic, in your language. We speak it. Don't, don't speak to us in Hebrew. You're freaking people out here. They can hear what you're saying. And then the one guy, a real piece of work, steps up and he says loud for everybody to hear, still in Hebrew for everybody to understand, do you think that this is going to affect Hezekiah alone? It is soon enough, you guys will be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine if you don't open these doors. They are they freaked out. They rip their clothes. They go to Hezekiah. They tell him what they said. What does Hezekiah do? What does this good godly king do? Go find the man of God, Isaiah. Tell him what happened. I'm going to the temple. He goes to the temple. He kneels down and he says, Oh, Yahweh, hear what they said, God. We can't do anything. We can't handle this. We need you, God. Cries out to God. God tells Isaiah, go, go tell Hezekiah, I heard what he said. I heard what he said against me. And don't worry, Hezekiah. I, I got this. I'm going to handle this myself for my glory, for my name's sake. Next day, a God sends his angel, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers killed right there, right outside the city gates. If it was 1,000, my mind would still be blown that God took out 1,000. If it was 100,000, I don't even, what, what is that number? 185,000 Assyrians there to butcher the last little remnant of, of the Jews are taken out without a single Hebrew sword lifted. Can you imagine Hezekiah looking out on that, realizing God defended us, protected us. And beside Hezekiah, who would have been there? A little boy, maybe a teenager, named Manasseh. So he would have grown up, seen the horrors of the north and what happened as a result, seen his faithful dad saying, son, I know this is going to be hard. I know I'm causing some stress for us. But God has spoken and he's told us that it's him and him alone. And we have to make this count, son. And then Manasseh would have seen the 185,000 corpses and thought, there's one God and there's one God alone. At least that's what I, I hope he would have thought. But let's get into his story. So let's get into the word here. So 2 Kings chapter 21. Just follow along with me. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. So just a kid with a great dad. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That is a long, long time to be in office. 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You think, oh, no, evil, come on. What's your background? According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Talk about a step back. Like Hezekiah takes them down. He says, let's get, some, let's get some construction projects going. Let's get these up again. And he erected altars for Baal 
So I don't know if you guys have seen photos of Dale before. Um, the, these little idols, they were, they were a big deal back then. Freaky little guy, little statue guy, usually with his arm up like he's mad, and he's got a hat that looks kind of like a bishop hat. And Baal was known as the storm god. He was also known as the lord of the heavens and the one who comes riding on the clouds. Total counterfeit. When you think about the son of man, Daniel 7, come, coming riding on the clouds of heaven. Yahweh rides the clouds, not Baal. But Baal was a big deal. A lot of people were diving in after this guy. And so he, he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. Asherah was uh, the, the mother of 70 deities, including Baal. And often she would be worshipped, where, where somebody would make a pole, a picture maybe like a totem pole, they would make a pole and, and worship her. Now, Baal and Asherah, if you wanted to show them how much you love them, three things was usually what would happen. Self-mutilation. You would cut yourself and, and bleed yourself, hoping that, that, that they would appreciate that. Ritual prostitution. Enough said there, horrible stuff. And then infant sacrifice. You would bring your first child and hoping that in sacrificing your first child, there would be financial prosperity on your home and on your remaining children. But we're talking evil, level demonic stuff, horrible stuff. This king of Israel, he builds an altar to these gods, and he puts it not only in Israel, but look where. So he does this as Ahab, king of Israel in the north, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Whatever he could find in, in generic universe, he would worship rather than God. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I put my name, in the temple, the place where you would go, wherever you are in the world, you would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and, and that was where God was dwelling on the planet, on, on earth, and right there he puts these idols and says, Israel, worship your gods. In verse 6, look at that, and he burned his son as an offering. Who is this son? This is Hezekiah's grandson. This great king. And, he, and for you grandparents out there, you think about how much you love your grandkids. This is what Manasseh did. The depths of evil that he was caught up in. And he used, look at verse 6, he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Uh, necromancer is not a word we often use, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's conjuring up the dead. It's going to psychics. It's saying, um, they're, it's acknowledging there, there's another world. There's something behind all of this, and I, I need some special knowledge. I want to know this or that. Uh, talking to ancestors and relatives, uh, dangerous, sketchy stuff. And God had spoken very clearly in the Torah, you don't do it. It's not for you guys, Israel. You don't do it. You come to me and me alone. So he is just going down the road here. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, skip down to verse 9. Uh, but they, speaking of the uh, Israelites, they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So unfortunately, a horrible shepherd, uh, bad leadership, will often trickle down. 
when the leaders of Israel love the Lord and are faithful to him, it shows in the people. And, and when the leaders, they don't love the Lord, uh, it debauchery follows. Verse 10, And the Lord said to his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon you Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch, uh, jump down to 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the, uh, the, the Jewish and Christian tradition says that actually Isaiah, so, you know, same Isaiah, we've got the book of Isaiah, great man of God, that Manasseh actually took Isaiah and had him put in a hollow log and sawn in two. Hebrews talks about, in, in chapter 11, uh, the hall of faith, and it talks about the different martyrs, the different Christians that were faithful to the end, even through persecution, that refers to, and, and some were even sawn in two. Uh, so this tradition points and says that was Isaiah, and the source, this guy, Manasseh. Verse 17, now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, since he died, and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon, his son, reigned in his place. So, I, this is dark, and I know this is like, why, why did he start with this chapter here? When you read this, does it sound like there's a good ending. Not at all, eh? Like, this is horrible. So most of, well, basically all my Christian life, 15, 16 years of reading the Bible, loving the Bible, reading this, every time I, I would just see this as, oh my gosh, like, this is good. This guy is the example of a bad king in the Old Testament. And I thought that was it. I thought there, there was nothing more than this guy crashed and burned and, and, and then focus and soon enough you'll get Josiah and you'll get a good example there. And then my, uh, my church there, so First Baptist in Calgary, we did a thing in 2021 called the Bible Recap. And it was a challenge to read the entire Bible in one year in chronological order, use a reading plan for it. And in the challenge was somebody said, do you know for sure if you've actually read the entire Bible, every word? And I thought about it. I thought, you know what? I, don't, I can't really say I've read like every chapter of Habakkuk or every word of Amos and like, I don't know if I have. So I said, okay, do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to do, uh, it's going to be tough. It's a discipline. I'm going to do every word of God in 2021. It took me like a year and a half. I'm a bit of a procrastinator, but got through it. And one of the, actually the most incredible thing that I learned in that year is what we're about to check out here. So God has his twist ending. So turn over with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And there's something, there's something really, really important to know about the Bible. We believe, as, as, as Christians, we believe in sola scriptura, which that means, that's Latin, for the Bible alone. It's the supreme court. Uh, how, do we, how do we see anything and everything in this world? We come to the word of God. It's, it's the filter we see through. But there's another concept that we often don't think of that's very equally important, and it's tota scriptura. It's the Bible alone and all of the Bible. 
And so it's very important for you and me, as students of the Word of God, to know it well so that we're taking all of the information that God says on any particular topic or person or, or, or thing or event and arrive to our conclusions with what the whole counsel of the Word says. So First and Second Kings, originally written as one book and written about up to the exile to Babylon or just at the beginning, written by Jeremiah, which I, I learned that in this study. I don't have time to get into it now, but if you are a Bible nerd, please track me down after and say, what's the case with Jeremiah? How do you know Jeremiah? Because it, it's a really interesting one. So Kings written by Jeremiah, and we have this other book, First and Second Chronicles, most likely written by Ezra after the exile. And when you bring these two things together, they look like parallel accounts, and for the most part they are, but the, the title, actually, of Chronicles in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is of things omitted. It, it's got extra info. And it's, it's, it's Bible. Chronicles have been, has been in there as long as, as Kings has. And when you read Chronicles and you look at the details, you get more that you bring together with Kings and you get the full picture that this inspired book is telling us. Okay, so 2 Chronicles 33. So if you look at the beginning here, chapter 33, verse 1, it's not going to look very different from what we just read. So 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So same thing. He Look at verse 6. And he burned his sons, plural. Even worse, it wasn't even just one like we read before. Multiple. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom. Jesus would later on refer to this as Gehenna. It's kind of southwest of Jerusalem in the days of, of Manasseh is where the, the, the worship of, of Molech and Chemosh happened. It's where the child sacrifice happened. In the days of Jesus, it was the dump. It was where garbage was continually on fire. and It was where the animal sacrifices from the temple, the, the leftovers was dumped. It was just the most grossest thing you can imagine spiritually and physically, and Jesus would use it at, for hell. He would say it would be better to... For this to not be there in that. And people are like, oh, that. So that's the Valley of Hinnom. He used fortune telling. So the rest is the same list, but this is what I want to show you. Verse 10, I'm sitting on my couch. I get to verse 10. I think I know everything about Manasseh already. And then I read this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh. Captured him. Like, wait, that didn't happen in the other one. What is this about? With hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Like, he's like the king of Israel? At some point, the Assyrians came, grabbed the king of Israel, put a hook I, I don't know if it's in his nose or what, put a hook in him, bound him in chains and said, let's go, and took him out of his country, off his throne, and brought him to Babylon. This was complete new information. I had no idea what was about to go on here. And Babylon, that is super far. Like in those days, you can't just cut across Saudi Arabia in the desert. You would follow the river. 
So you're going up Lebanon, up to Syria, you're getting to the Euphrates River, you're going along to eventually to Iraq, northern Iraq, where Nineveh was, modern-day Mosul, and then you go keep going south, 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 to modern-day Baghdad, south, 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 Babylon, almost in Iran. So you've got this king who has been taken from his people, from his throne, and put, how long is that journey? Ezra, when he came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, it took him four months. Now, he came in a group of 7,000 people, tons of kids, probably took a lot longer than it would normally take, but still, a four-month journey. So let's say even half. So say two months, this evil, wicked king, Manasseh, is bound, being pushed or kicked or whatever, on this long journey, thinking, what did I do and what is about to happen to me? Maybe calling out on his false gods and getting no answer. Eventually, he gets to Babylon. Is he getting good treatment there? I don't think that guys that get bound in chains get good treatment. So who knows what it's like. Is he kicked in some cell in Babylon? And he thinks, this is it. This is how it ends for me. What else do we get here? And when he was in distress, what does he do? What does the text say, verse 12? He entreated the favor of the Lord. So entreated. We don't use that word very much. Entreated, it says, ask someone with sincere and intense conviction to do something and with anxiety. A desperate plea. So this desperate plea, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. Very interesting that it says that in the text. Now remember, all the insanity that he did in his life, he's still the king of Israel. And it's supposed to be Yahweh whether he's a prodigal son running far, whether he's the sheep that's wandered super far, there's one shepherd, and that shepherd wants his heart. So the favor of the Lord his God, and then what does Manasseh do? Look at the second part of verse 12. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. That's another way of saying repentance. Repentance is when you Turn your back on your sin, on yourself, on the world, and you face God again. And you say, God, I'm done with that. I'm dead to that. And I want you, God, you and only you. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God. Now, what would God do, right? After the life he's lived, you would think God would say, with sweet justice, no, too late. I brought the Assyrians to bring you out over here, and I'm done with you, Manasseh. I'm going to keep going with, with, with the next in line. But what does our God do? He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea. You think about that parable Jesus, Jesus tells where... Um, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they go to the temple. And the Pharisee says, God, I've done it all. You know, I love you, but I've done it all. I tithe, and I, I, you know, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I do that. And then the tax collector, who knows that he's a sinner, and he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven, and he beats his chest, and he says, God, have mercy on me. Another way of saying it is, I won't make it without you. And then Jesus says, who went home justified? Another word, a Bible word for saint, right with God, set right, forgiven, pardoned by God. And it was, it was the tax collector. 
So that God, this God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem. We don't know how. The details aren't there. Kind of on a need-to-know basis. We don't need to know yet. But he is brought from that desperate situation of being bound in the chains. He is set free and brought back to Jerusalem. And this part here, into his kingdom. In the Middle East, then and today, you just have to turn your back for a sec and somebody's preparing a military coup. Everybody just wants it like, that's my chance at the crown and take over and take that throne. And this, how long has he gone for? Maybe you know, four-month trip there, four-month trip back, how much time was there? The throne is waiting for him. God is that gracious. And I, I would also add just that, uh, the, the line of David, because of God's love for David, because of the Messiah who would come in that line, God preserved that throne. But still, just the fact that it was there when he came back, I, I say that's a miracle of God in itself. And the end of verse 13, this, this impressed me a lot. Look at that. Look at how it's written. Then, so he's back home. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then he knew Yahweh was God. That journey, if, if God hadn't done that, if God had just left him on his throne in Israel, it, it's very much like you and me. Uh, I'm sure you've felt that too, where life is normal and routine and you're busy and you're caught up in your stuff, you're caught up in your worries and there's just not, there's no room for God. And maybe you, you do know him and love him, but he's taken a bit of a back seat. Maybe at times of your life, you didn't know him at all. Maybe he was a foreign God to you. And yet something happened during your life, whether it's, it's health, concern, family, stress, work, something happened that was Horrible. It, it, it sucked. You would, you would wish you could have not have gone through that. And yet it was that circumstance that set up the right setting for you to call on God. Or for you to see God work in your life to bring you to the place to call on him. Usually I find that happens first. He is incredible and sovereign and powerful. And he knows his own and wants to draw you, starting with your heart and through your circumstances, draw you to himself so that, like Manasseh, you could surrender and say, Lord, I, you are Yahweh, and I'm it. Uh, for me, that was uh, 2005. I was in Ireland. It was in an area called the Burren on the west coast. I was hitchhiking around the island. No one was picking me up for hours on that day. And I'm walking, and I'm backpacking, and it's the coast, and it's beautiful. And I'm thinking, I, I, was, I was gone for five months, and I'm thinking about time and time again, that I would pray on that journey. And the, the coincidence that would happen would just be incredible. And then a Christian would be there and help me connect the dots. And, and as those stacked up in my mind as I was in the Bora and walking, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is real. God actually exists. And he actually heard me each time. And he actually put a Christian from all kinds of backgrounds on my way each time to help me see that it's not just some random coincidence. And as that all connected in my mind, I thought, and he knows me. I want to know him. And it kicked off. But when I, when I would come back to Canada and think, I want to go to church now? That, that's weird. I was 21, 22. That was not on my five-year plan to uh, go to church and eventually Bible study. And eventually, uh, I remember friends gave me a Bible, and I thought, well, why? I'm already going to church. And I, I remember at the time thinking maybe a priest wrote this in the Middle Ages. I knew nothing. And, and the adventure 
It was just beginning, but it really began God pursuing. So Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So what's he going to do? This king, this, this evil man, and always remember the background that he had. He now knows God and his home. What's it, will his life be any different? So let's see. Verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of the Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around the opal and raised it a very great height. So he's got this military project going on. Uh, he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. I, I almost picture like Hezekiah was doing. You know, we're going to take a stand. It's going to be tough. The Assyrians aren't going to like it, but we're going to take a stand anyway for Yahweh. And he took away, verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, he went and he cleans up. All the stuff that Hezekiah had taken down that he put back with his eyes open and with a new heart, he says, we're done. Cleaning up. Uh, I don't know, maybe that, that's your experience when you came to the Lord. Maybe you were into other stuff, uh, different religions, where you're now in love with the Lord, you're now a Christian. You come across these old stuff and into the glory of God, yet dump it in the garbage, and it feels fantastic. Uh, I remember in the book of Acts in uh, Ephesus, when many people became believers out of paganism, and they had a huge bonfire, and they're whipping their old like sorcery books in the fire, and it says the value of the books was just a fortune, but to the glory of God, people saying, done with that, for the Lord. What does he do with this stuff? He threw them outside the city. Verse 16. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. This is a new man. God, thank you for bringing me hope. God, thank you for opening my eyes. God, thank you for giving me another chance. And he commanded Judah, to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Can you imagine what people would have thought? Say a psychic or a ne necromancer person, all these people in all, in all of this occult who used to say, what a great king we have. He lets us do whatever. He's into all this stuff too. And now to have him come back and think, one, he's been gone forever. He's back. And he's talking about Yahweh. He's destroying the altars. He's telling us, serve God and God alone. You have to be thinking, what? happened. Like we watched him sacrifice his child. What happened? I'm sure it stirred, stirred their hearts. And what, what is this God? Verse 17, nevertheless, the people sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built the high places, and set up the ashram and the images, before he humbled himself, before they are written in the chronicles of the... Uh, behold, they are in that, in that book there, chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Amon his son. What a different story. Isn't that incredible? We get one where it's just 
crash and burn, no redemption. And then we get the full picture written after the events to say, uh, and these God-inspired words to let us know, look what God did in this man. Now, I wanted to show you this to tell you about another great king. Most of you probably already know him. Some of you might be new to him, King Jesus. He came through the line of David. Jesus' ancestor was Manasseh, which is incredible. If ever you do a study of the genealogy in chapter 1 of Matthew, and you just circle names, you're like, they're there, they're there, they're there. And you've got a prostitute, and you've got uh, Judah, who, who actually sleeps with his daughter-in-law, who thinks she's a prostitute at the time, and, and that leads to twins, one of which becomes the ancestor of Jesus. Like, it's just, it shows that God uses broken people like you and me to accomplish his will and to bring about this great King Jesus. So let me tell you a little bit about him. If you could turn your Bibles over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And what you do, so Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Amazing verse. I'm teaching it to Michaela now. And it says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that's saying is that the way in which you and I can be made right with God, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's repentance and believing. And when he died on the cross, your sins were transferred to him. And his perfect life, the life that you and I should live and have lived, and we can't, Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. And it is credited to you. Theologians call this the great exchange. His perfect life put on you, your sin and mess put on him, so that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it made you forgiven, clean. That you are in Christ, and as a result, you have peace with God, which says something about your standing before you were in the Lord. If you have peace with God now, what was it like before? And this God that you now have peace with, he pursued you. He sent Jesus, and then Jesus willingly went to the cross and chose to suffer such an extreme death because he realized, he knew it was the only way to make you right with the Lord, right with God. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, beautiful verse as well. Therefore, we have, now we have no condemnation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So a little bit of condemnation, none. Purgatory says you're going to go and have some condemnation for a little while, and eventually you'll suffer enough that maybe it'll turn out well. There's no such thing. That was made up. Romans 8.1. If you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Christ took your place on the cross. The wrath of God you deserve was put on him. And 1 John chapter 1, this is for the journey. This is the grace that you and I need for the journey that we follow the Lord. So look at verse 8 with me. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So this was a problem for me. You know, honestly, grow, growing up as a Canadian, you know, thinking I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, 
uh, trying to do you know the right thing, trying to to make good choices. Uh, the the sin of deception hide my over my eyes for quite a while, thinking I'm not that bad, until I realize that's just even in that is 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 a lie. That uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. I didn't even know him or care about him until he changed my heart and opened my eyes in 2019-2022. And that's, that's the case for all of us. We all are sinners. And if we'll just admit it, and we'll just say, God, I am, rescue me, Lord, save me. He will. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, if you will openly tell the Lord, God, I need you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When Manasseh called out in a dungeon in Babylon bound in chains, and it looked like there should be no reason that God would ever say yes or answer him, that God that was moved to mercy for him, he is the God that will do the same thing for you and for me. When we call out on him, when we repent of our sins, as often as you need to, you let him pick you up and dust you off and, and push you on to take another step following him until the day that you are with him, until the day that he brings you home safe and sound to be with him forever in heaven. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and show his word is not in us. So cling to that, brothers and sisters. I, I want to leave you with that. Um, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever worries and stresses you have right now, however the world is trying to pull at you and try to take you back or keep you if you still belong to it, I, I just I encourage you and I pray, cling to the Lord. It's never, ever too late. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's never too late to call out on Him and to surrender, to give your heart to the Lord and He'll make you new. He'll walk with you. He'll give you everything you need to get so if, if you would uh, stand, uh, I'll pray for us, and then uh, let's go have some fellowship over uh, some, some snacks here. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, God, for giving us the letter of kings to know what has happened, God, to, to know, uh, have these examples of men, Lord, who, who clung to you even when it was hard, and have examples of men, Lord, that followed the world right to the end. And God, thank you for giving us chronicles, Lord, that we could be encouraged by the whole story, Lord, that we could see that amazing twist ending you had, you had planned for Manasseh. And God, we ask the same for us, God. We want more and more of your mercy. And we're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that, that, that we know that to be found in you, Lord, is to be blameless now and on the last day. So God, be with us. Help us live for you this week, God to surrender ourselves, to cling to you. Uh, may there be much fellowship happening among us, Lord, over this week. And, uh, and God, thank you again for the chance to gather here this morning and worship you. And Jesus Christ, we love you, and in your great name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.